We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for FlexBox, win time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com slash B-E to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B. This B Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights, strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com slash B. That's IXL.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we work to amplify the voices and ideas of changemakers in education. We talk with students, educators, and thought leaders who are questioning the status quo and resisting tradition in education. We invite you to join us as we discuss how to shift the classroom, the learning environment, the mindset, and the pedagogy to try something new, reignite wonder, and reimagine education. If you are in the Bay Area, we are currently accepting applications for students for the fall of 2023 Yes, we have limited spots available, and also for our elementary and middle school starting at TK through 7th grade for fall of 2024. Up Academy has created our framework so that new and existing schools can develop imaginative, exciting, relevant, engaging learning environments for all of their students. We're excited to introduce the Rebel Project Literacy Curriculum. It's a fully integrated literacy and project-based learning curriculum that supports social-emotional development and is based on skills and competencies. Learn more at projectup.us. Have you ever thought of opening your own school? Project Up is also supporting new educators and families to create schools like Up Academy and schools of your own design. Reach out to join our affiliate network at projectup.us. Now, let's get to today's episode of the Rebel Educator Podcast. Welcome, Rebel Educators. I'm here today with Tom Willis. Tom is a former classroom teacher and prior CEO for Cornerstone School System in Detroit. He also believes in the power of lifelong learning. These beliefs have shaped his primary goal in life, helping others move beyond their self-limiting beliefs so they can reach their God-given potential. He was fortunate to earn an engineering degree from the University of Michigan and an MBA from the University of Notre Dame. He thanks God every day for his amazing wife and three wonderful children. Welcome, Tom. I'm excited to chat with you today. Yeah, thank you, Tanya, for having me. I'm really excited to talk as well. So before we hit record, we were talking just a little bit about your time working with the Detroit school system and moving into some culture building work that you're doing now. But I'd love to hear 
a little bit about your journey, how you got started in education and what led to being superintendent or CEO in Detroit. Well, it was a kid in the front row who was eagerly raising his hand as the short answer that reminded me of what was always inside of me, which is I knew I loved kids and I loved the world of education. I, I loved learning. But to back up a few years, I went to University of Michigan, did an engineering degree, worked for some big companies like Intel out in New Mexico, and then PricewaterhouseCoopers in Chicago. Luckily, I got fired by PricewaterhouseCoopers during the dot-com explosion, and a few thousand of us lost our jobs because of that, because I'd probably still be there and I'd probably be miserable. And a good friend of mine invited me over to Africa. He was over in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, Africa, teaching at a high school there. And so I said, all right, sure. I got nothing else to do. So I went over there and actually started teaching. And it was in this moment of teaching kids, in this case, literally on a chalkboard, some different concepts. I was talking about Spanish, which most of them had never heard before. Teaching them some Spanish, I was talking about the Great Lakes and just all sorts of different subjects. We were kind of killing some time. And I'll never forget the moment of realizing that although these students really had nothing in sort of material wealth, that they were just kids. Kids are kids, no matter where in the world you are. And I had been avoiding that world for a long time because of you don't exactly get rich as an educator. And I knew I wanted to raise a family and be able to send them to college someday. But it was really life-changing because I came back to Detroit, Michigan, and started teaching. And eventually, one thing led to another. And about 10 years later, I was a school superintendent and just absolutely Loved it. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, for sure, but tremendously rewarding. And all those steps along the path sound smooth and easy, but they weren't. You know, there was very tough moments where I was felt lost. I felt like I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I just kept getting up and kept trying the next thing. And thank God I ultimately got to do what I got to do. And now I'm helping about 50% of our clients are schools across the country, superintendents and just absolutely loves the work that we do now, helping them take their teams and their effectiveness and their cultures to the next level. So you mentioned that being a superintendent was the hardest thing and the hardest position you've ever had. Can you share some of the difficulties or struggles or a story about how it was so difficult? Yeah, I should probably say the second hardest because being a, an actual teacher is the first <laughs> job in the world, I think, especially I was teaching high school and middle school. Middle school was tough, <laughs> tough for me. So middle school teachers have my utmost respect. But yeah, being a superintendent was probably second hardest. And because I thought once I got there, it would be easy, right? I, I sort of quote unquote arrived, people would just do what I said, and things would be great. And overly simplistically, obviously, that's not how leadership works. And I had to really change my whole mindset because I was always good at solving problems and getting things done. But I didn't really fully tap into what it meant to be a leader. And I had to almost rewire my DNA from a problem solver and sort of a super doer to someone who helped facilitate and who helped grow the people, grow my team so they could be the problem solvers and we could do that work together. So it took me several years. And thankfully, I had some amazing mentors and amazing board members who helped me. But it uh, was not easy, to say the least. What would you say are the top skills or characteristics that you needed as a leader running a school district? Well, I think in, in our case, a tremendous amount of empathy and a tremendous amount of checking our 
sort of our ego at the door. I was lucky to grow up in a very stable household with two parents, two older brothers, sort of middle class suburb of Detroit. And I was superintendent in Detroit, where 99.9% of our kids were African-American, where 80 plus percent were free and reduced lunch or below the poverty level. And that just wasn't my background. And so a lot of our work was really realizing that we really didn't know. We really had no idea the life experience of the students that we were on and just serve. And again, that took me a while to figure out. So that's probably at the top of the list. Beyond that, I think as a superintendent in general, a desire to never stop learning, to really model what it means to be a lifelong learner, not intellectually, because superintendents by and large are very good at that, but to actually do it and to be a learner is much more difficult. Because what I've found is many folks, especially if you get a PhD, there's sort of this idea of arrival that we've arrived at learning and we're done. And that can be dangerous, I think. You can never learn too much. And especially in schools where culturally we're focused a lot on social and emotional learning, SEL, that one of the biggest disconnects, again, this is just my opinion, but from my perspective is that We're doing a great job of teaching the content of SEL to kids, but we're not doing a very good job of being SEL. Many teachers' lounges are still quite toxic, and kids know that. They pick up on those sorts of things. And if we're going to try to help students learn what it means to be socially and emotionally aware, then we adults need to model it every single day. We don't need to be perfect by any means. We can't be. But are we willing to at least have the humility to acknowledge when we fall down and when we struggle to really be emotionally aware and socially aware and personally aware. Want to know one of my biggest frustrations with ed tech? Tools that assume every student learns the same way at the same pace. I need my technology to do more for me. That's why it's so important for me to know that IXL provides true personalized learning across the entire pre-K to 12 curriculum and that it's proven benefit to all student populations, including English learners and students in special education programs. IXL is research-proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non-IXL schools on state assessments and independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results, combined with IXL's teacher-friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? I'm sure you want to increase achievement for all students. Find out how IXL can help. Visit IXL.com slash B for a demo. That's IXL.com slash B-E. I want to take a step back to the beginning of what you were talking about, and then I want to come back to the SEL and building emotional intelligence in our teachers and in our cultures. But going back to essentially when you were a superintendent, it sounds like you took on and were leading a community that you weren't really a part of and that you didn't understand. So how did you, not being a part of the community, go about learning and integrating yourself into that understanding and finding empathy and then really bringing them together and building trust to follow you as a leader? Well, that's a great question, Tanya. And you'd have to go ask those folks, you know, just how good of a job I did or didn't do. But I think it starts with, I've got a good friend in in Seattle, and he talks a lot about, we got to stop focusing on people's disabilities and start focusing on their abilities. 
And the same is true for how we treat human beings. We look at these surface level things like skin color or education background or how much money somebody has, and we use it as a proxy for judgment, which is never productive or or never healthy. And so I think for me, the big breakthrough came when I stopped focusing on myself and how different I was from them. And I started focusing on we're all human beings just trying to work together for the betterment of these kids that we were serving. And, you know, humans are humans. And I think that was really the breakthrough is I stopped thinking about my skin color and I started focusing on what are we out to accomplish as a team and how are we going to come together? We accomplished some amazing things. We tripled in size. We opened two of the top 50 most innovative schools in the country as designated by one of the original CEOs, the Gates Foundation. So we were doing some great stuff, but we also struggled in a lot of areas. A lot of schools struggled with test scores. We weren't different from that because we refused to become myopically focused on test scores. We really believed significantly in the whole child and culture and character and virtues were a huge part of our focus. So I think the short answer to your question is we got focused on what we were all there for together as a future and not so much focused on who we were as sort of our current reality. And that brings us back around to the social emotional learning. But just to share a little, because you've mentioned a few times, you know, we're all humans and kids are kids. I run an elementary school that I founded in 2018 and we are fully inclusive. My oldest daughter had cerebral palsy and we really launched because I couldn't find the right educational fit for her in a fully inclusive environment where she was going to get academics to be successful and therapeutics to be independent. But it was really designed to be inclusive of everyone and how do we create an opportunity for all kids to, in your introduction, it was reach their God-given potential. For us, our school is called UP Academy, and so we call it the ultimate potential, which is what UP stands for, ultimate potential. And how can we create an environment where that happens? And a lot of it is letting go of judgment, letting go of preconceived notions of ability or disability or race or gender or what someone is supposed to be in quotes, (laughs) since audience can't see me, is supposed to be and really who they are and how do we work on those common goals. And so much of that, to your point, is working on character development and what some have called soft skills or 21st century skills or the four C's. But how do we build these skills and this development for our students And a lot of it comes down to social emotional and how do we collaborate and how do we work together and how do we self-regulate ourselves so that we can really do our best work in the company of others. So bringing that in, what do you see that gets in the way of social emotional learning in schools, I guess, is the first part. And the second part is we have to model that to be able to teach it. So how can we work with our educators and staff to really develop that model culture so that our students can learn from that? Yeah, well, I think the second part of your question is the answer to the first part of the question, that there's plenty of good SEL curriculum out there, and you could debate which one's the best. And in my opinion, as long as you're picking from the top dozen or so, then great, roll with it. But don't treat it as a class to teach. You know, we always joke with superintendents that we don't train, we don't do leadership training. We don't do culture training. You can train a puppy, but you can't really train human beings. Now, I I say that a little bit tongue in cheek because obviously it's good to be trained in CPR and some sort of tactical things. 
But when you're talking about things of the heart and of the mind and really who people are being, you can't train them in that. You have to provide an environment and a culture where people can be open. They can explore things with the Socratic method. They can be willing to say, I don't know, which is pretty rare in the world of education. We're taught that we should know things. And if we don't, that's a bad thing. That's never said out loud, right? But that's sort of the undercurrent. And so I think what gets in the way most of all is just fear. It's fear of not looking smart enough or not knowing like we know what we're doing. Or that if I open up and say something that people might judge me. And so I think the short answer is fear. Obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. But it starts with how do we actually create an environment where people can be open and honest? Brene Brown has made vulnerability very hot topic nowadays. And it's good. It's good stuff. But what we like to say, it's, it's not really about vulnerability because nobody, I've, I've never met anybody anyway that wakes up excited to be vulnerable. But what you can wake up excited to do is to be open and to be real and to be honest. Those are things that are more palpable and more tangible. And when you do that, it can feel vulnerable. But vulnerability isn't really the target. It's sort of the, it can be a byproduct of being open and honest and real. And so that's the work of, I think, what superintendents should be focusing their energy on is helping people have real conversations with each other. Because in the education world, we tend to avoid things. We tend to be very conflict avoidant, and that's not a recipe for productivity or success. And so it starts with, let's be real. Let's have some real conversations. And then let's build on that and talk about where are we going together as a team and what's the future that we're committed to. Yeah. And one of the things you mentioned earlier was really having a lot of empathy, especially when you were working with kids and talking about being a superintendent, having a lot of empathy and letting go of ego. And so I think a lot of times part of that letting go of ego is how are you curious? And it's not about me and my experience and the things that I know, but overcoming that fear of not knowing or that fear of judgment by instead coming in with curiosity. And so I guess, what role do you think curiosity plays both in education as we shift the way that we're teaching our students, but also in culture as we shift the way that we're working with educators? Oh, it's huge. You know, I think it's huge. I think the world is changing so, so rapidly. You know, you think about the power of chat GPT and all these AI tools that are coming that you could upload an organization's entire work history, legal documents, everything else. And within minutes, that system is smarter than the smartest team of lawyers you could possibly hire. So going forward as leaders, it's going to be less and less about what we know and more and more about what we can help facilitate from a group of people. And the best way to do that, as far as I can tell, is curiosity, is the simple open-ended question, powerful question that gets people thinking and gets teams talking in new and different ways. And so it's going to be the same as schools, I think, and with kids too, that ultimately, we've got to help facilitate a love of learning that's lifelong. And the way to do that is through curiosity. It's why kids start off asking millions of questions a year. And then by the time we reach adulthood, we're, we're asking a few questions. It kind of gets beaten out of us. And I think we've got to reverse that trend in order for all of us to more fully just be open. I heard this fascinating fact the other day that the Library of Congress has something like 180 million reference documents and books. And that's, the, that's sort of, if you will, the sum total of what we know as human beings. 
which is a fraction of what there is to know in the world, in the universe. So there's no possible way that we could read those books. We can't even read a fraction of them. So quite literally, we don't know anything. Even the smartest people don't really know that much. And so if we can let go of that and let go of like, we need to prove ourselves to the world, it opens us up. It's very freeing to just be willing to be curious. And as teachers, especially, we all know that the sage on the stage is a dying breed, that we really need to be more of the guide on the side. Now, I think there's a place for both of them, frankly. It's another either or. But I think we need to be moving more and more towards that guide on the side that's just asking questions and getting kids thinking. I like guide on the side. I don't think I've heard that one before. We've talked a lot about learning engineers and facilitators of learning and guides, but I haven't heard it in a nice alliteration like that. That's fun. (laughs) Yeah, it's something that I'm always working on is how can I be more curious and how can I ask more questions? Because I find myself, even in social settings, I'm drawn to the people who are asking the best questions because they draw out so many things in others in the group around. And then you can dive into these really interesting conversations because somebody asked this really curious question. So do you have any favorite open-ended questions that you like to start with when you work with schools or with groups and culture building? Yeah, it's a fair question. And the answer is no. (laughs) And here's why, because when I started doing this work eight years ago, I was focused on memorizing good questions. And I completely missed the point because your question has to be in response to what people say, which means you have to be deeply, deeply listening to what they're saying. Because if you're not, then all you're focused on is the question you're going to ask, not a question that will help the other person. And that's really hard to do. I have not mastered it myself. It's very difficult to do. So my response would be, first of all, to ask an open-ended question. We don't realize how often we think we are, but we're not, especially as leaders. We'll say things like, well, here's what I think. And, you know, I think we should do this and we should do that. And don't you think that's a good idea? Now, if I'm a leader and I just ask my team that, it's not even a closed ended question with two possible answers. But they have to agree with you. <laughs> it's not a question. Now, there are some very good hearted leaders who don't intend to do that. They genuinely want to know what their team thinks, but they don't realize that they just shut the conversation down with a close-ended, don't you agree with me type of question. So I would say, if you're going to focus on anything, use the word what, and then insert your question after that. Because if you start with what, you almost can't get yourself in trouble. Whereas some of the other questions like why, technically open-ended, but can be very judgmental. There can be like an element of like, well, why did you do that? So what is kind of the fail-safe way to start an open-ended question? Now I'm trying to think of a question that starts with what? (laughs) there's only six ways to start them it's what we learned back in probably fourth or fifth grade right who what where when why and how that's it there's only six ways to start and open in a question and if you use a technique called layering you're literally taking part of what the person said and you're putting it in your question which you've done a great job of today you've taken part of what i said and you then asked like a follow-up question with that. So that's probably the most effective and simplest technique I could offer up to the audience. There's thousands of others, but that's probably the best. It's one of my favorites. And it's actually what was running through my head because I'm like, how do I start a question with what? And I wanted to ask more about the mindset shift in leadership lessons when you shifted, because it's something that as a leader, I'm working through right now as well as 
I'm very much a doer. I do all the tasks. It's easier for me to just take care of it than to delegate. And I'm sure for a lot of our rebel educators who are listening, this probably resonates with them as well. But how do you shift from that doing, doing, doing into a mindset of leading and creating change and supporting others through that process? See, and there I switched from where I started with a what and into a how. But <laughs> I'll ask you a question back. What is the fundamental job? If you just simplify it, what is the fundamental job of a leader? So the thing that I tell our new educators when they come in is that my job as a leader is to provide resources and remove obstacles. That's what I want to do. Whatever's standing in the way of them doing a good job, if they need development, if they need support with working with kids or with families or something they're struggling with or a new curriculum, my job is to provide those resources and then to remove any obstacles that are standing in their way of doing their best work and being their best self. That's my goal. And I found definitely through COVID, building the community, because suddenly it felt like I couldn't make decisions anymore. Everything felt like life and death. And I couldn't be the one to make those decisions. Do we come to school in person? Do we not? Do we wear masks? Do we not? Do we temperature check? Do we not? Do we test every day? Do we test once a week? Suddenly, all of these things were just things I couldn't decide. And so we had a ton of community forums and brought everybody in. And then that made me the executor of their strategy. I wasn't deciding. I wasn't the decider. I wasn't the decision maker. I wasn't the problem solver. All I had to do was execute what the community had decided. So I guess it's kind of those three things, remove obstacles, provide resources, and execute the community strategy. And all those things are true. But if I go back to the question, which is fundamentally, you said help people become the best version of themselves. And even simpler terms, it's to help your people grow. That's it. There is no such thing as an organization. There is no such thing really as a culture. It's just a bunch of human beings. And so if you're going to grow your culture, if you're going to grow your team, if you're going to grow your impact, if you're going to grow the number of kids that you're serving, you have to grow the people. That's it. So that's the way that I like to think about the job of leadership is that when we start to become the super doers, we're actually undermining our people's growth. We are so focused on ourselves and we have such, and I do this too, so I'm not pointing fingers, but we have such big egos that what we're really saying is, you can't handle it. I'll do it for you. And that's not terribly healthy. Agreed. And it's hard as someone who's been a super doer for a very long time to then not do and delegate and share and push off responsibilities onto others and to find the balance of how much responsibility others can take on and do well with and where's growth and where's overwhelm. Yeah, that's true. Although I, I find that we limit people way before they limit themselves. It's just part of, again, sort of our underlying invisible ego. This is interesting because it leads into the culture conversation that most of the culture work that's out there doesn't work. If we're honest, probably 85, 90% of it is wasted. Billions of dollars is spent around the world. And most of it doesn't work because it's wasted on stupid things like trust falls and ropes courses and passing the talking stick and all this silliness that doesn't actually create change. And because most of the work that's out there misses the fundamental point that what makes culture so difficult to improve is that it's unconscious, that most of what we do as human beings is unconscious. When I first heard this, I thought it was a bunch of you know BS. You know, I'm an engineer. Don't tell me I'm, I'm unconscious. <laughs> I know exactly what I'm doing. 
Well, the reality is I don't. If we had to be conscious of all the things we do, we would be exhausted by 9 a.m. So it's a huge gift. This ability, our brains are unbelievable. The things that we can do, like driving a car while talking, I mean, that's amazing if you really think about it. But we're able to do it because most of it is unconscious. We are literally not conscious to what we're doing. So it's a huge strength of ours. The problem is when we get to work, we start to behave in unconscious ways. And then we start to do it as a team. And we don't realize what we're doing. We don't realize how we're shooting ourselves in the foot or we're undermining what we're trying to do, or we're teaching an SEL class to the kids. And then we talk about that teacher down the hall that we don't like, and we just completely unconsciously undid everything we taught the kids. So it's not bad, it's human. So the first step is, how do we become more conscious? And that's not easy to do, but it is the keys to the kingdom. It's why we're able to guarantee our work to superintendents and to CEOs. If we agree to work with them, we promise results with every single client. And that's the first step of social emotional development. And that's the first step of just self-regulation that we work with our students of being conscious of this has happened to me. Now I have a decision. I don't have to just react. How do I want to react? Taking it all the way back to being seven. Yes, that's it. I mean, this stuff is not new. It's centuries old. This is timeless wisdom. Many people have talked about it really boils down to our fundamental emotions. And at the base of these emotions are really two at opposite ends of the spectrum. One is fear and one is love. I don't mean love like Valentine's Day. I mean love like putting the other person first, which is tremendously difficult. But putting the needs of somebody else before your own, that's real love. And that's it. If you're either reacting out of fear, which is instantaneous and involuntary, or you're slowing down and you're responding by putting the other person first, that's what makes tremendously powerful leaders and tremendously powerful cultures. Thank you, Tom. I'm going to shift gears and ask a question that I ask all of my guests at the end of the show. And because I run an elementary school, I love to hear other people's experiences in elementary school. So I'd love to hear a story that you remember from your elementary school years. Oh, there's so many. I loved my elementary experience. I could share how I repeated second grade, which is kind of funny, but I don't know if that's the best story. I think probably for me, it's those teachers. In fact, I just went to my, my daughter's going to high school in a year from now. And I was talking to the principal and I was like, man, your name sounds familiar. And we couldn't figure it out. And then finally, I pulled out a picture on my phone. I said, did you teach this kid? And she goes, oh my gosh, Tommy Willis. I said, that's me. This is a picture of me. <laughs> third grade. And we haven't seen each other in, I don't know, 35 years. And she said, I'll be right back. She ran into her office and she pulled out the class picture of us, the original, and she ended up giving it to me. And that was just a few weeks ago, by the way. To me, that's it right there. That's the essence of a good elementary school is that sort of care and love for the kids. That we adults are willing to put our egos and put our whining and our complaining to the side about other teachers, about the principal, about the economy, about parents, about how much money we get or we don't get. And we're just able to focus on the kids and to love on them, no matter how they show up. To me, that's what you know. elementary should be all about. Absolutely. How can people get in touch with you, Tom? Well, our website is phoenix, like the city, perform.com, phoenixperform.com. I'm on LinkedIn quite a bit. And then I don't really use much of the other social channels. You can also email me at tom at phoenixperform.com. 
And I always love to talk to educators and, and superintendents. And if we could be helpful, we love to do that. It's part of our mission in life. And we actually have a group of CEOs and school superintendents that we bring together once a month digitally on Zoom to help just go through this leadership stuff together. It's a wonderful group of leaders and very humble group that we call the interchange. So if there's any leaders out there who are interested in that, happy to chat about it and see if it might be a good fit for you. So lots of different ways, but we'd love to talk. And thank you again, Tanya, for having me on. That sounds great. Thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. Welcome. That's it for another episode of Rebel Educator. Thank you for joining us and thank you for spending your limited time with us learning how to be rebels in education. If you'd like to learn more or access our project library, you can go to rebeleducator.com. If you'd like to learn more about our progressive elementary and middle school in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out upacademy.com. Interested in learning more about our Rebel Literacy Project curriculum or launching your own school and joining our affiliate network? Visit projectup.us. And if you haven't read it yet, pick up your copy of my book, Rebel Educator, Create Classrooms Where Impact and Imagination Meet on Amazon or anywhere you read or listen to your books. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to leave a review and rate our show so that others can find it and love us too. Look forward to talking to you soon. Keep resisting tradition, Rebel Educators. There are a lot of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design and integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com B to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com B-E. Do you want to save time on prep work? Increase achievement for all student populations? Reliably meet Tier 1 standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.